Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's been such a tough year for so many businesses. So this season, we thought it would be a lovely idea to highlight some of our favorite brands and businesses and use this platform to raise them up. So this week, we are sponsored by and highlighting our favorite kombucha brand, Momo. I've actually known the founder of Momo for a while as I used to teach him yoga. So it's lovely to be able to share this with you all. If you don't know, kombucha is fermented tea, which when brewed properly is a delicious, slightly fizzy drink that's low in sugar and naturally contains probiotics and healthy organic acids. Momo kombucha is brewed the homemade way in small glass jars and is completely unfiltered. It's also certified organic, meaning it's better for you and the environment. Momo's newest flavor is the delicious raspberry hibiscus, and they've partnered with the amazing breast cancer charity Future Dreams and are donating 5p to them for every bottle sold. It's also a really great non-alcoholic alternative this festive season. So if you'd like to try Momo for yourself, then they are kindly sharing 15% off using code KITCHEN15. Happy sipping! And welcome back to Kitchen Club with me, Sarah Malcolm, and my wonderful friend, Serena Lauf. Kitchen Club is the podcast that brings you conversations from our kitchen table. Each week brings a new guest, a new area of expertise, and a new recipe created using our guests' three favorite ingredients. This week's guest is the incredibly knowledgeable Kimberly Wilson. Kimberly is a chartered psychologist, author, and visiting lecturer working in private practice in central London. Her philosophy of whole body mental health is a comprehensive approach to mental health care, integrating evidence based nutrition and lifestyle factors with psychological therapy. We loved chatting to Kimberly and just wished that we could have kept going for longer. If you'd like the recipe from this episode, we will be posting it in our brand new Patreon page, which we would love your support on. We'll leave the details in the show notes and we'd be so happy for you to join our virtual kitchen club over there. Here's Kimberly Wilson on Kitchen Club. Hello, Kimberly. Welcome to Kitchen Club. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. We're so excited to meet you. I just said before we started recording that I feel a bit starstruck because I'm a bit of a Bake Off fan. So <laughs> I'm very overexcited. Just, it's just <laughs> cake in a tent, it's honestly. <laughs> just cake in a tent. That's so good. Mary. <laughs> and I just did a dance to Whitney Houston before this, before we recorded. So I felt high on life as well. It's lovely. <laughs> Which song? Um, wait, hang on. Why has it come to my mind? Um, don't you want to dance? What's that called? Dance <laughs> for somebody, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The best one. I've recently got a Google Nest, so I feel like I just go, hey, Google, play this. And I just get up and dance. So great. Kimberly, let's dive in to yeah. your three ingredients yeah, that, that you gave us, your favourite three ingredients. And we've had quite um, a challenge with these, but 
Can you remember what you told us? Yeah. So, um, and, and can I say that there was also a bit of a change of plan? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my choice like what are my really favorite things and and so one which sounds odd because I could just say pasta but specifically pappardelle mm-hmm. um just I just love the texture of it like fresh thick ribbons I think there's a kind of generosity to it that I really like it's like the kind of pasta that says ah, I'm here <laughs> like, so, um it's like unapologetic in its largesse um <laughs> and then chili because I live for chili there was a period in, in my life where like I almost joked that I would put chili on my cornflakes it was just I was on board for chili in in everything I could get it in <laughs> uh, and there's lots of interesting psychology stuff around chilies in that um you know people who like chilies it's not that they or we um don't feel the pain um the theory is that we kind of like it <laughs> sadistic I quite mm. like that um and then my original one um was pork belly and I don't eat a huge amount of meat and so when I do you know I want it to be something that feels often something you need to put a lot of time into like it's more of a kind of ceremony mm-hmm. um and uh, I think pork belly is one of the kind of cheaper cuts does that very well um and also it's the kind of thing I have you know if I go for like ramen or something like I know lots of Asian cuisines do it very well and it's like one of my favorite things mm-hmm. um but I had to change that <laughs> <laughs> and so I went for um and uh, almost equally something that I love which is kimchi um and again I do also it's got chili in um but I eat a lot of fermented foods as well and I quite like quite punchy pungent flavors so fish sauce and chili and garlic all comes together in kimchi with fermentation to make something that's quite sturdy I suppose (laughs) sturdy what a good word for an ingredient large pasta and sturdy kimchi (laughs) I recently saw um Jamie Oliver cutting out lasagna sheets fresh lasagna sheets so he made them as big as possible in fact maybe he just kept them as they were so they were kind of like these massive sheets of pappardelle instead of you know having them their normal size it looked larger than life it looked amazing Serena and I have been sort of toying with how to bring all of your ingredients together, Kimberly, because I googled kimchi pappardelle or kimchi pasta just to see what would come up. But oh, really, I mean, we're going to try it out because I sent I sent two different pictures to Serena. I was like, maybe it's a thing. It actually looks really delicious. <laughs> oh God! Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm game. Um, I've, I've never heard of it. I've never seen kimchi combined with pasta. A kimchi cheese toasty is a thing of beauty. My favourite. <laughs> it's the best. This yeah. is a real, um, it's, I think Italians would be quite unhappy to know that we've done this to their carbonara. But we found a lot of recipes for kimchi carbonara. So we're going to give it a go. Oh, and I can't buy kimchi anywhere near my house. So I've got it arriving tomorrow. We're going to make it for you. And I'm adding, I'm, I'm the annoying vegetarian who stopped you having pork belly. <laughs> so I've ordered some vegetarian bacon so I can okay. make kimchi carbonara and then you can make it with real bacon. <laughs> okay. Awesome. If it's nice, that is. If it's nice. <laughs> and if it's awful, we'll make a new recipe. <laughs> so listeners, stay tuned. I was once in the audience for Ready, Steady, Cook. Um and it was like totally fascinating because they obviously it's a what is a half hour show but obviously it's recorded for a couple of hours and there's all the bits and pieces I mean don't don't get me wrong it is timed and kept to time but you know all the kind of faffing at the beginning and warming up the crowd and all of that stuff um and they didn't let you taste the food and I was like oh, outrageous and then it occurred to me like if it's only been cooked in 20 minutes it's probably all raw <laughs> so true inedible inedible so um let's dive in to your areas of expertise you've had such a varied career please um pull me up if I have missed anything here but you've got a nutrition degree you are governor of the Tavistock and Portman NHS Mental Health Trust one of them yes one of them you led the therapy service at 
I never do say HMP Holloway at Holloway Prison. Yeah, but I mean, Holloway Prison's fine, yeah. Which, cool fact, housed loads of the suffragettes. Yeah. When they housed them, imprisoned them. Housed them. Um, <laughs> and before it closed down, it was Europe's largest women's prison. Mm-hmm. And you were also a former finalist on Great British Bake Off. Ah. All of these are true facts. Is there anything I've missed? Um, I, no, I think, that, I think that's enough. Okay, cool. So there's so much we want to talk to you about. And since it's a foodie podcast, let's start with, did food and nutrition play a big role in your life growing up? um uh, not in a kind of formal way you know lots of people talk about you know I grew up my mum was you know on the allotment bring you know that's often a story that people who get into food have and that wasn't my my story I was just a hungry girl like I was just always just really um just really loved food and but also um my mum inherited from my grandma these big leather bound red cookbooks and I think they would have been um kind of serialized like individual sections that you would collect over the years across mm. the like 70s and 80s but they were enormous and I remember the smell of them um and I would just spend hours like lying on the floor fl- flicking through because they'd have full like a4 color images of the dishes and it was nothing that I was ever going to cook um <laughs> but there was a kind of um, a kind of escapism, kind of, it was a kind of a play, like I think about making these dishes and what they would be like and what they would taste like. So, um, so that I think was my first interest, literally my own belly and these lovely books. And then when I went to school, I was fortunate enough, and I really mean fortunate because I think it's a life skill and I'm worried that lots of people aren't getting it. I was fortunate enough to go to a school where we had food technology classes and we would do all of the basics. Um, so I don't know if we learned how to fillet a fish, but we you know cakes and pastries, learning how to make a basic scondo. And one of the things that always, I think, my mum would always say to me, like, if you've got flour and, and eggs, you won't go hungry. It's like knowing what to do, the very, very basics. You can make dumplings, you can make breads, you can make scones, you can make stuff stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so I was just kind of into cooking lots and lots and lots. And then became at uni, became the annoying person who was like <laughs> talking about nutrition and telling friends that you should be drinking green tea, like back in the early 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's been a kind of thread in lots of different ways. That's beautiful. <laughs> it just struck my mind why we called it food tech. This so this was a strip that used to be called home economics, right? Yeah. Um, and it was called food tech, which I think is that this is the story that I've heard because you know part of the I think at the time conservative conservative government plan was to help train more people for the food industries and like the industrialization of foods. So one of the one of our whole modules one year was to create a food packaging, like food packaging with the barcode and ingredients and do the nutritional profiling. So um, it was I think it was called food tech, perhaps to bring it up in line with what was called cdt back then like um design technology yeah um but also because it was about food technology and and partly about processing and um food industry gosh that's that's great that your school did that i think we did it for like half a term once and that was it no i did it for gcse yeah yeah wow Oh my God, if I could have done cooking as a GCSE. Absolutely. It was, it was so much fun. And I did um, for my, because you, you have to design a, a, a meal and I made a sweet pasta dish. So I was, again, I was like a 15 year old, a 15 year old Brit with a pasta roller. I was like, I was such a nerd. Um, <laughs> but I made, I remember what it was. I made a sweet ravioli. So filled with like, I think it was cream cheese and apricots in a raspberry sauce. Um, so wow, delicious, innovative. Wow, innovative as kimchi pasta. It's coming up <laughs> podcast near you. <laughs> um, so let's dive into your sort of specialist subject, Kimberly. If we were on Mastermind, brain health, because mm-hmm. it says in your very brilliant book this sort of stagger, staggering um, 
quote and sentence says, across the lifespan from the young to the elderly, the leading causes of death and disability are illnesses of the brain and mental health, which if you think about it, that's, it's just kind of mind blowing, isn't it? The amount of diseases you think of in the world and that is the leading cause. Um, And it's something I think that, you know, as a society taking care of our brain health you, you you just don't think that you kind of think of heart health and mm-hmm. and other sort of areas but it's so important so before we sort of dive into everything <laughs> what firstly does it mean to have a healthy brain okay um so it can mean different things at different times and and so my when I usually think about it, when I think about it for myself as an adult, I think of it as having a brain that you feel you can rely on. It's knowing that if you need to sit down and focus on something for an hour, you will have the attention and the capacity to do that without getting overly fatigued and having to take breaks or having your attention go everywhere. Mm. It's about knowing that you can go to bed and your brain is able to generate good quality sleep. And when you wake, you feel fully rested. It's about being able to go out into the world and not feel overly paranoid, overly anxious, overly worried that the world is a hostile place. Um, and, and to, to be able to engage in, in good, healthy relationships. And that all comes from having a healthy brain, you know, good mood and focus and attention and all of those things. So as an adult, I think it's about that. I think, uh, we also need much more to start thinking about what having a healthy brain means for children and, and for children, it's much more about the structural features and components it literally means making sure children whether that's in utero or infancy or early childhood have the right building blocks to make you know to to start the foundations of a healthy brain in terms of its structure because that stuff starts even before conception so a woman's fatty acid profile at conception has an impact on her child's brain development and we know for example that baby boys are much more vulnerable to the mother's fatty acid um, composition than baby girls are. And then how much essential fat she's getting during her pregnancy will make a difference to the literal size of the baby's brain. So different things at different times, but essentially making sure that you've got the basic healthy structure and that then your brain is also functioning well. That's mm, fascinating. Gosh. That is. I didn't know that about, yeah, conception. Um, and then on the flip side of that then, Kimberly, what does sort of symptomatically in the body, what would you say an unhealthy brain would look like? And I, I know there's a big old list, massive <laughs> list, but just sort of like pockets of things. Sure. Yeah. So, um, an unhealthy brain is a brain that is having to work harder than it already does, I think. So that being, you know, our foundation statement being that the brain is A, the most complex, but B, the hungriest organ in the body. Like it uses a disproportionate amount of energy in order to just do its normal basic processes. Of the 2,000 average calories a day that a body needs even before doing exercise or moving around 500 of those calories are just for your brain, right? This little tiny organ is using a quarter nearly of your calories. Um, so your brain has this enormous energy demand. It needs a lot of energy and it has a big nutrient demand. Um, so not just the nutrients that help to build the structure of the brain, but the nutrients that are needed to make your serotonin, to make your dopamine, to make sure that those signals can fire. Um, And so it needs a good quality supply of all those things just in order to work normally. And and so I think an unhealthy brain is a brain that is depleted of those things and therefore is running on fumes. And you're never going to get optimal function out of a brain that's just not, you know, it's like trying to run a car when the energy, when the petrol's basically tanked. Um, But also, but your brain relies on the rest of your body for information and other sources of like resources or nourishment. So it needs proper sleep. It needs regular exercise. Your brain is profoundly affected by how much you move or not. Um, so I guess that's a broadly a, a brain, an unhealthy brain is often a neglected brain, um, but a brain that isn't being given what it needs to function properly. And there are lots of different things that, that lead into that. 
So these days you work in your private practice in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that the main things you focus on are the role of food in mental health, uh, disordered eating, the gut-brain axis, which we're going to get into because I'm obsessed, <laughs> and our emotional relationship with food. So I appreciate that we could literally talk to you for five hours, not one. Um, but just to to get into it a little bit, how much does what we eat affect our brain health and the way we feel? Okay. <laughs> um all right. Essentially, really profoundly. So acknowledging that your brain is using up this disproportionate amount of energy and nutrients in um from your body. Um I mean there are so many ways. So for example, we know through randomized control trials and also large epidemiological studies looking at 11,000 people, 15,000 people, um, big cohorts, big groups, as well as like mechanisms, like looking at cells in dishes or animal models, that when you, the, the more a person sticks to their own country's guidelines for what's a healthy diet. And um, so for us, it's the, the healthy plate or the food triangle or you know, whatever, um, and they're different in every country. But the more you adhere to those guidelines, the less risk of depression you have. Um, And in some of the big meta-analyses, you see what's called a dose-response effect, which is the more you adhere, then the better your outcomes. You know, there's a point where it's threshold, but the closer you stick, the less your risk, and the further away you are, the higher your risk um, of depression. And depression is soon to be our leading cause of disability um, or disability-adjusted life years, which is the number of healthy years you lose to an illness. And so more people are losing healthy years of like vitality, of joy, of engagement, of productivity, of, of, of happy family life to depression than they are to things like cancer, HIV, malaria. Like depression is a huge psychological burden around the world. Um, and we have this startling finding that you, if you can improve, and it's starting with people who have poor diets, um, but if you improve their nutrition, you improve their depression. Um, and that's really important as a psychologist, right? Because depression is, you know, it's one of the the two big things that we're trained to work with depression and anxiety, which often come together. But depression is, is what you expect to see day in, day out when people are referred to you. And the rates of treatment resistant depression are going up and up and up and up and up across the world. So we've had effective treatments, you know, antidepressant medication since the 50s and 60s. Yet our rates of treatment resistant depression are going up. More prescriptions are going out, but more people are resistant, are not responding to treatment to five, six, seven different types of medication. So being able to effectively treat depression is is a growing kind of urgent need and no I'm not saying have a salad and you'll feel better but understanding the relationship between your nutritional status your movement your sleep and how they might be able to improve the outcomes of something that's causing so many different people distress is really really important um I feel like I, I've gone off on a tangent <laughs> I feel like I've only answered one part of your question but no that's awesome really important nutrition is really important <laughs> and could you tell us a little bit again I know it's a massive thing but a little bit about the gut brain axis for anybody who's not familiar with the concept sure and I think lots of people will have heard of it and there's lots of talk in in the press and online about healthy gut and what does it mean to have a healthy gut and more people are talking about fiber which is fantastic but so broadly the the gut brain axis is the the relationship between the gut and the brain. And there are some direct and indirect ways that your brain and your gut talk to each other. So one and the the kind of main structural one is what's called the vagus nerve, V-A-G-U-S. And it's it's this beautiful nerve. It sounds strange to describe it like that, but when you see it, it's like, (laughs) such a bird. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it it kind of comes down and it kind of spreads out like these long branches. Um, And it goes down through the back of your throat. It connects in through the heart. It actually connects through all of your vital organs, so your heart, your lungs, your liver, your spleen, your kidneys. Um, and then finishes up in the gut. 
And it's this bi-directional pathway. So messages are going from the top down and from the bottom up. And in fact, more messages coming from the bottom up than from the top down. So, you know, um, I always say that if you think of it as a, a motorway with 10 lanes, seven or eight of those lanes are going upwards from the body into the brain. So your brain is always gathering this information about what's happening in the body and what's happening in the gut, which is, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because the your mouth and your gut is where you take in information about the outside world right you've got your senses so you've got sight and touch and um, and smell which gives you information about the outside world but only through food do you literally take the outside world into you um and so getting that information up to the brain is really important and it tells the brain a lot about what's happening around you or it did in the past right in terms of seasonality and risk of famine and all of that sort of thing um so that's a direct route The indirect route is really through uh, things like the byproducts of your gut microbiome. So when they eat all of that lovely fiber and they create B vitamins or short chain fatty acids that get into your bloodstream, travel up to the brain, cross into the brain and have effects in the brain that way. Um, And the immune system. So again, because you're taking the world into you from um, through food, through food is the, the main way that bacteria and bad things will get into you as well, right? And mm. so it makes sense that a lot of your immune system is in and around the gut to make sure that if you take in like a dodgy bit of meat or whatever, um, it's there ready to fight back. And so you've got a lot of your immune system in and around the gut ready to fight anything that's you know sh- has arrived that shouldn't be there. And so your gut microbes teach your immune system what's a friend and what's a foe. And so when that works well, you can eat a broad range of things and be fine. When that that process doesn't work well, then there can be kind of cases of mistaken identity. You know, allergies are almost a case of this mistaken identity mm. that your immune system has said, wow, there's a piece of peanut protein. We need to fight it rather than but actually it's fine. And then finally, there's this brand new piece of research, uh, which I just, it really makes me just kind of have a bit of awe for the body. But what it showed that was that, so your brain is covered in this membrane. Um, and again, because the brain is so delicate and you know really needs to be protected, it's really vulnerable. Your brain has the consistency of jelly or tofu, right? It's really, really vulnerable but also massively important (laughs) we need to protect it that's why it's completely encased in in a shell right unlike Mm. unlike the rest of your organs right it's completely encased Um, and it has this layer of um immune cells as well around it just to make sure nothing dodgy crosses in from the bloodstream um and some new research has shown that those um immune cells that are on the outside of your brain, because your brain has its own immune system inside. It has its own immune response. And the ones that are on the outside were trained in the gut. So they get trained in the gut and then they kind of march around to your brain to protect your brain. I just... Wow. I love it. Gosh. I love that. (laughs) The stuff that goes on without us, you know, don't even think about it. And I posted the, the link to that that piece of research in my, in my stories. And it just, as I say, like, it makes me have so much awe for the body. And I just, I said to my, my audience, I said, I just wish we were taught to love our bodies before we were taught to hate them. Like just have the awe and be impressed by all the incredible things that you are doing without even thinking about it. Um, And have this deep appreciation for really how amazing you are. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So our gut and our brain, they're best friends then, essentially. They really are. (laughs) (laughs) For the most point, they get on really well. And and I say for the most part, because um, it depends on what you're feeding it, right? And it depends on, and not just you in terms of uh, your deliberate choices, but of course, as I said, they um what your mother eats when she's pregnant with you and your early um food exposure will have an impact so we're looking now at the the role of the gut microbiome on literally shaping the brain um so that through that vagus nerve messages get sent up to the brain which can change the structure 
of it. And so those early food experiences or maybe early exposure to antibiotics, which can damage the gut microbiome, mm. might have an impact later on. And we might not, you know, it might just make for a different kind of brain, but it will have an impact on the kind of developmental pathway of the brain. Mm. Um, so in a sense, you know, they're both very, de- they're both hugely important they're both fairly delicate. The brain, I guess, is a bit more delicate. Your, your gut is usually a bit more robust, um, but they're always in constant communication with each other. And I guess the, the yeah, the calmer and the sort of uh, nicer the environment of your gut, the maybe the quieter your brain will be in, in terms of like calm. And if your gut is happy, then your that relationship will be like, oh, I don't need to the brain doesn't need to worry about all that stress going on and it can just like process other stuff and do the thousands of other things it needs well, to do. Ideally, but also vice versa though. So one of right. the reasons that I really, it sounds a bit weird to say, but I really enjoy working with IBS or, or at least find it so interesting is this bi-directional relationship. And one of the things that I see an awful lot most of the time is people who have IBS and it makes sense that like you've got IBS, you think, oh, it's probably the food. It's probably something I've eaten or that I'm sensitive to, or I'm allergic to that's giving me these gastro um, symptoms. Mm. But so that that vagus nerve, that nerve I mentioned that goes from the top to the bottom, not only is it the main structural component of the gut-brain axis, it is the main component of your parasympathetic nervous system. So your sympathetic nervous system is your fight or flight response, your stress response. It's adrenaline and cortisol and getting ready to fight and, you know, feeling tense and your heartbeat going and your lungs pumping. Um and the parasympathetic nervous system is the kind of off switch to that. It's the, we call it rest and digest. It's like nice and relaxed. Don't mm-hmm. worry. It's okay. It's the state you have to be in to sleep. It's the state you have to be in to have sex. So it's also called the feed and breed system. Um, <laughs> feed and breed. I have not heard that. No, that's great. <laughs> but essentially it's this, this process of being calm and and coming back to, to baseline, to homeostasis. And it's one of the reasons that you should never... And, you know, you shouldn't try to eat when you're stressed, really. Mm. Or you should try to, if you have to, you should like make it as gentle and, and digestible as possible. But it's the reason that when you're nervous and anxious, your, your tummy goes and you get butterflies and maybe you, quit, you need to have an emergency wee or whatever, right? Um, it's this relationship. And, and so IBS is a stress-sensitive disorder. And for so many people their IBS symptoms are related to their stress management uh, or the level of stress they're under. The, uh, the, they're often they're not aware of how much stress they're under. They hold it, they almost swallow it down and it finds its expression in their gut symptoms. So, you know, it really goes in both directions. Mm-hmm. And so the calmer the brain is, the better digestion you'll have and the better the gut will work, but also yeah, the better fed your gut is and your gut microbiome, the more like healthy protective stuff they'll send up to the brain and, and the calm, the message of everything is okay is what will be being sent up to the brain. Yeah. So what should we be eating then, Kimberly, for our brain health? It's something my mum my used to talk about loads when I was sort of studying for my levels or whatever she'd be like eat a walnut eat a walnut <laughs> so I'd be like oh, take it in <laughs> um so I think your, your mum was kind of onto something so um walnuts do have omega-3 fats in them but they and and they are good for the brain and, and vitamin E which is also really good for the brain so um walnuts but mainly if we're thinking about which is my real soapbox is omega-3 fatty acids, DHA in particular, and EPA, um, which are found most abundantly and most bioavailably <laughs> um, <laughs> in marine foods, in oily fish um, and seafood. And the, I have growing concern forward slash panic about our population intake of these foods, these fats in particular, you know, with the caveat that there is a sustainability question and, you know, how much can we be taking from the seas and how healthy are the seas? And we might, as we go forwards, need to be thinking about 
um, can we synthesize these fats in other ways? Um, but these fats are absolutely crucial to the structure of the brain. Um, we, if we think actually that having ready access to these fats helped us to literally evolve the brains that we have because human brains are way bigger than they should be. We have the largest brains of any land mammal. Um, our brains are bigger proportionally than an elephant's brain is. Wow. It's our, and, and, and that's kind of cray. Like <laughs> our brains are enormous compared to our body size. So for, you know, for an animal our size, we should have a much smaller brain because the brain uses up so much energy. And so there's always a kind of evolutionary toss up between building a big, strong body and having a big brain, right? Because your brain is using up so much energy. And um, you're like, either you can have a big body and a small brain in terms of how many calories we can get in to sustain you, or you can have a big brain and a small body. So <laughs> this is this is what happens. Um, and, and we believe that it was, you know, that because a huge chunk of human evolution was on the coastlines and we had ready access to these essential fats and fish are much less dangerous to catch than, say, a mammoth or whatever it is. No, they're easier to catch. They're much more abundant. They cook very quickly, all of that sort of stuff. But it was these facts that led to the development of our brains and the complexity of our brains and that real kind of trajectory, that exponential growth in our brain size compared to our primate relatives. So that's why these facts are so crucial. They literally helped make our brains in the first place. Wow. And it means that we need to, they continue to be important for us because evolution doesn't happen that quickly. We still need these fats. The worry is that according to a paper that was published in 2017, children, less than 4.7% of children are getting the recommended intake of these foods. Wow. It's a real problem. Mm. Um, and your body can't synthesize DHA. Like technically it can, but at a rate of about 8%, not enough to, in, in order to, um, to, to build a healthy brain, to build a, a complex, well-connected brain. Um, you see in trials, so in animal studies where they take, uh, you know, pregnant mice and feed one group enough omega-3s and, uh, and the other group not enough DHA, um, the pups, the babies of those mothers who had deficient DHA, they have smaller brains, smaller hippocampi. The, the connections in the brain are called the dendrites, which are like the points of connection and communication, um, are smaller, they're stunted, and there are fewer of them. Um, and the signals that uh, the synapses, which is, you know, if I want to very crudely make you happy, I'm going to send a molecule of serotonin across the synapse. That doesn't happen as well. So there are several ways that not getting enough of these fats leaves the brain depleted. Um, so my big, big concern is population level intakes of these fats and how they might be contributing to the rising rates of psychological distress and, and brain vulnerability that we're seeing. And that had been predicted from the 1970s. Mm. Off the back of that, do you think that nutrition always plays a role in people's mental health conditions? Not always, no. I think one of the things about the brain and the body is that we always see them um, as completely distinct, right? If, you, if there's something wrong with your brain, you go and see a psychiatrist or a neurologist or, a, you know, and if there's something wrong with your body, you see some other tiny specialist, like a cardiologist for your heart, or whatever. Um, and so we've really looked at the body as neck up or neck down for a very long time. Um, and I think what that, that has done is to completely miss large aspects of where the two are related, like everywhere. Um, <laughs> but no, the thing, particularly with something like depression, is that it's a very complex, multifaceted disorder. And so one person's depression, as we've seen in some of the trials, might be because they've got a chronically bad, like poor diet, nutritionally depleted diet, and their brain is just like trying to walk uphill in a snowstorm their brain is just like I can't do it um and so for those people it might be related to some sort of nutritional feature for other people it's that they are burnt out from a job that they hate where they don't have very much control and they don't feel like their work is being uh, recognized or rewarded for some people it might be the fact that they had 
early trauma or adverse experiences in childhood, which lower the threshold for their stress activation. And so they're walking around in this chronic state of stress and that chronic stress tips them over into depression. So one of the, so we need to be thinking about, you know, what's causing individual people's depression. My depression is different from your depression is different from, you know, someone else's depression. Um, and where nutrition might be helpful is in, if we think about the whole body being related in terms of stress or affected in terms of stress, can we take out one of those sources of stress, right? So if for you, the big issue is but work burnout, that's what's really driving your depression, like 70% of it. But also because you're burnt out and tired and stressed, when you get home, you just eat two chocolate muffins and three glasses of wine and go to bed. Actually, that's just turning up your stress. Can we lower the amount of stress that your brain and body is having to deal with by improving your nutrition? And does that buy you a little bit of leverage, right? Does that just make things a little bit easier for you? Does it make it just 2% easier for you then to get through your day? So for me, it's about looking at the body and the brain as a holistic integrated system and seeing because mental health conditions are complex, providing complex solutions, you know, not just, well, we'll give you a pill and, and fingers crossed that will work, but let's look at, let's appreciate and honor the fact that this is a complex issue, not treat it in a simplistic way and look at the ways that we might be able to intervene. And maybe for some people, nutrition is something that's going to give them a little bit of uh, resource or, uh, you know, respite. It also um, adds that element of, you know, if, when you're thinking about your nutrition and what you're actually thinking, right, what does my body need? What can I sort of take care in? Then it kind of goes down the whole other route of cooking yourself and just taking care of yourself, spending that time, you know, put, putting in this love, this time for feeding and digesting and the whole rest, like the cooking part can be the sort of meditative state as well. Yeah. What kind of reverence? I told one of my clients yesterday, she was describing how um, rushes eating. And I was like, well, you know, we need to have a little bit of reverence for food, you know, and, and the people that provide it, you know, that there's, I, I follow an account on Twitter, which is about farm workers and it shows you videos of farm workers. And there are people in the driving rain on their knees, picking lettuces and cabbages and coriander for us um and for me whilst you know sometimes I have to I, I try not to but you know it, it all happened at some point that I have to quickly eat something but for me it's almost about just having respect for the fact that someone is earning their keep on their knees in order for me to be able to pop to the shops and buy some lettuce um and and so and also a reverence for the fact that you know you're eating something that has grown out of the ground and that you know has photosynthesized its way into existence. Like that's yeah. really cool. <laughs> and yeah. I feel like we, we 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 get so disconnected from our food that we don't see the awe and the reverence in it. And that if we did, a we'd eat more slowly. Mm. Um, B that would probably mean that we would digest better and and more of the nutrients from our food. We would enjoy it much more. Um, and I think get more pleasure out of it as well, because when it's, it's that whole idea that um, if you, if you see the effort or if you put the effort into something yourself, you get more of the reward out of it. Right. Like if you've made a, you know, a, a clay pot, it might be wonky and it might not be professional, but you've made it and you can see the care that went into it. And so you love it in its own yeah. way. Um, it's that, you know, the more that we understand and appreciate the effort and care and time that goes into our food production, whether that's in the field, on the farm, in your own kitchen, then the, the greater appreciation and gratitude uh, that we'll have in the process of eating. Yeah. So well, so well put. I think it's also so important now when everyone is, well, not everyone, a lot of people are working from home. It can be very easy to, to fall into, oh, I'll just stay at my laptop and work. Mm. I mean, I guess this kind of goes into a different topic, but, you know, spending all our times at our screen, spending all our time at our screens and um, being on technology so much like that must also kind of question have 
the most impact on our brain health and and stress and then bringing that down to eating mm. this is me my how my brain works Kimberly I'm just like <laughs> bah, 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 what's going on yeah well I think all sorts of things I think that yeah, I talked to a, a dermatologist friend of mine and she's saying that there's been a rise in people wanting fillers and Botox because they're sat at their screens on calls like this, looking at their own faces. And it's just an unnatural thing to do. So you just spend your whole time like looking at your face and, and over fixating on it and thinking, oh, maybe there's something, you know, and, and being really aware that someone else is looking back at you. That's mm-hmm. not a normal thing that happens in conversation in the real world. You know, we're sat down and I just be looking at your face and paying attention, hopefully, and being interested in you and all of that stuff. And instead there's this really strange way in which I'm, I'm talking, but I'm also really aware of what I'm doing, what I'm saying, what my face is doing, and it becomes partial performance. And when, our interactions become partial performance, then we we end up kind of objectifying ourselves much more. We mm. start looking at ourselves as objects rather than being kind of present and, and subjective. I think it's really same, interesting. I think the same thing happens with food. I think food on Instagram does the same thing. Um, and I, I post food on Instagram, so I don't know whether I'm playing into this or whether, you know, sometimes I'm subversive and I will just post beans on toast because let's not pretend that we don't eat beans on toast. Why are we like avocado toast? No, <laughs> we eat beans on toast and get with it. Um, <laughs> but the food, well, I mean, this is a separate part, but the way that food is used uh, symbolically and to represent things, food, certainly in the UK, is a massive indicator of class, either class affiliation or class aspiration. Mm. Um, and, and, and and there's a way in which the food just becomes, again, an object, a visual thing. I, I posted the story a long time ago now about, and, and with just shock and horror, that their restaurant owners were saying that we have groups of bloggers coming in, ordering table loads of food, taking pictures and then leaving. And not eating it. Oh my God, that makes me so angry. <laughs> oh. And that's where the respect is lost completely, isn't it? I mean, right, where you complete, where, so when we spend so much time, when we're viewing, whether it's ourselves or our food through a screen, it becomes an object, it becomes disconnected to meaning and value. And so you think nothing of the fact that there's a chef in the kitchen who's been slaving away for hours to produce these meals and you're just going to consume them in order to get likes. And, you know, it's, it's a whole thing. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's that's so mad, isn't it? And I, and I always say this, but I think the reason we started this podcast, I mean, ordinarily we would all be eating our kimchi papadelli together (laughs) but is to have that appreciation of the ingredients that light us up and yeah the respect for our food and the way food brings people together and enjoying it together yeah Yeah. important food does bring us together it always has the idea of a campfire um and and the fact well essentially food drove evolution is my hypothesis um because you have to cooperate in order to to hunt you have to come together in order to produce a meal, to set up the fire, to find the food, to gather the berries, to pick, the, you know, whatever. Um, you have to keep each other safe. And so food is a huge part of the development of cooperation um, in the human species. What a nice little talk sauce. about your healthy habit then, so Sarah can go and teach. <laughs> sure. I've got a million sorry. questions. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry students not coming. can you tell us Kimberly what your healthy habit was please yes my healthy habit is well in normal times a, a half hour sauna but in corona times a hot bath um and that for me is just the ultimate way to relax and and there's um what's nice um for the other part of me the the nerd part the science part mm-hmm. is that there's lots of um really growing evidence about the importance of heat exposure or the effect of heat exposure on reducing your risk of alzheimer's disease so that's a nice bonus wow that is a big bonus is that can we find more info on that somewhere in the book 
done a whole chapter on, on heat exposure um and how it works and like how these amazing little proteins are like coming together to help protect your brain wow so <laughs> listeners let's read the book in the bath yes yes <laughs> heaven and I mean I don't have a bath which is sad but weirdly this morning Kimberly I've had no hot water we've had no hot water for like a month and this morning we had hot water and it was like you know super hot and it was so lovely and I thought is this because we're talking to Kimberly today and I just like <laughs> you know, soaked in the steam and it was lovely so good <laughs> yeah, thank you water. <laughs> <laughs> Kimberly sent you hot water. <laughs> Try and curb my narcissism here. I think a hot bath is the best cure for anything. So it's just, it's just mm. the most relaxing thing. Um, yeah, I love it. And and you know, there's a reason that lots of different cultures around the world, whether we're talking kind of sweat lodges or you know Scandinavian sauna or you know Russian baths that there's a reason that this exposure to hot to heat or to hot water has been persistently applied um in cultures around the world and now we're seeing the science behind it that it does improve mood it seems to protect against depression and it seems to be able to help reduce your risk of dementia so lots of very good side effects yeah so this chat is just a lovely little taste into Kimberly's fantastic book that we can all just enjoy and learn so much more. But thank you so much for joining us, Kimberly. I'm w- sorry we didn't have longer. I've got literally 20 more questions I know. in my head for you. <laughs> I know. You're so wise. I love, I think it's because I've got a geek in me too. So the geek in me loves the geek in you. Sitting at the front of the class like, hello. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you kimberly thank you so much thanks for bye. Having me. thank you bye thank you so much kimberly what a woman and we just want to say since recording that episode with kimberly serena has now made this wild old kimchi recipe so serena tell us how was it it was an experience and actually it was bloody delicious but it's bizarre it's like it kind of is just like a delicious spicy creamy cheesy pasta so no complaints pappardelle is a great pasta i fully agree with kimberly Mm. and the veggie bacon is a weird one i've not tried it before and it actually lends itself really nicely to the recipe because it means you get these little like crunchy salty smoky bits inside but i guess if you are not into that or if, if you eat meat you could just use some normal bacon Mm, the picture looks absolutely delicious thanks honey i'm gonna make it asap rocky (laughs) if you'd like that recipe which will be delicious otherwise we wouldn't be telling you about it for today's episode you can find it on our patreon page which we'll leave in the show notes below this episode and it's really lovely to have your support over there we're growing a little community and it's just gorgeous we'll also leave kimberly's details all below this episode so you can find out more about her thanks so much for listening everyone bye bye mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market